Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior ETF Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Kevin Carter, who is the Founder and Chief Investment Officer of EMQQ Global. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Kevin, I want to start by asking you about the dollar. The U.S. dollar index just at the lowest level in over a year. How important is the dollar when it comes to returns for emerging market stocks? And do you think this downtrend in the greenback will continue? Well, I don't make currency predictions. I know that the dollar had been very, very strong, and I know it's it's come back in. And I also know that there's a lot of people that think it will continue uh, to decline, it's, it, it, especially if and when the the um, Fed's uh, you know hiking cycle uh, ends and or turns around. So I, I think that uh, perhaps the worst is over in terms of the dollar strength and, and how it affects emerging markets, which it has historically. Um, stronger dollar has historically meant uh, lower returns uh, for emerging markets. So I, I, whether that you know applies to the uh, emerging markets you know, indexes as they are today versus where they've been historically, I think it's to be determined. But I think that, that there's definitely been a strong historical correlation between a strong dollar and weak emerging markets. Gotcha. So certainly the the weakness we've seen in the dollar recently might bode well for emerging markets. Kevin, what about China? There was a lot of hope that China's reopening following the end of its zero COVID policies would spur economic growth and strong performance in Chinese stocks. But, you know, instead, we've had a string of disappointing economic reports recently, and Chinese stocks have been lagging quite a bit this year. They're down while most other stock markets around the world are up. What's going on? Well, I think that people have had unrealistic expectations of of China's, you know, the speed with which their economy might get back on track. And I I think the, the main problem is people seem to forget that you know, it was just a little over seven months ago that that China was still in a lockdown, and in an incredible you know turn of history, the Chinese people or you know some some number of thousands of them went into the streets and said we don't want to do this anymore, and the Chinese government response was to quite literally take the you know take down the entire apparatus the next day and and say fine we'll stop the zero COVID. And that was in the early part of December. And so the reality is that, you know, the country had to deal with the COVID. And so for four, five, six months, however long, you know, people were getting sick and people were dying and people's friends were dying. And so the the idea that, that you know, China was going to end the lockdowns and immediately go back to normal, I thought was pretty far-fetched. I know I just had a talk with a, a, a Chinese my colleague in London last week and, you know, and asked him, he said his his parents and grandparents had just had the COVID in late May. So I think it was unrealistic for people to expect that we'd have some, you know, immediate resumption of, of normalcy and growth. I think it's still a little early to read the tea leaves, as they say, when people are looking at different you know, indicators. So I, I think it's too early to say is my, my main answer. But I, I would note that the you know the the recent numbers this week that that were weak on the exports um, and on some of the purchasing manager uh, uh, data. 
I think that should be welcome news. If we're if we're looking for the end of this inflation uh, problem, then you know the fact that the Chinese exports are disappointed. I think that's probably positive news in terms of where we are headed with inflation, and then ultimately with U.S. interest rates, which have been, you know, in my in my view, that's been the biggest culprit in the last couple of years. Is the risk free rate went from zero to to five and a half or six percent. So if, if we can get that reversed, I think that'll be good. But in terms of China's reopening, I think it's still too early. And I think that the Chinese government also, if and if and when it becomes clear it's necessary, they certainly have room to to stimulate. Gotcha. Still too early. So it sounds like you're saying expectations were a little bit too high in terms of this reopening. So what can investors expect going forward? Are, are we going to see 5% GDP growth in China from here on out? And what about, you know, all the concerns that people have had about the tech crackdown and the high youth unemployment and the real estate downturn? Are those still things to worry about or have they worked their way through the system and things are a little better now? Well, in terms of China's growth rate, I think that China can resume 5% growth. And I guess you know, it's it's not that I thought people were unrealistic and expecting a, uh, you know, growth to resume in China. I think they were uh, they were unrealistic in in terms of the calendar and when that would resume, right? And and that's where I think that people didn't quite appreciate the the reality that the COVID had to go through the population and that was going to be very disruptive. So, um, I know that the World Bank continues to have China's growth estimates up in that five percent range. And that the World Bank also continues to believe that the, between China and India, uh, they will drive uh, half of the world's GDP growth in the next five years. And I think they have more economists than that I do, so I'll I'll defer to them on on that. In terms of you know a lot of the um, other noise, um, you know the. the in addition to just the the big macro changes and the interest rate changes that were very real, um, China's had you know a, a couple of years of its own specific fears that have largely been resolved. The first one, the so-called China Tech crackdown, which you referred to, and you know I, I never saw it as a tech crackdown. I saw uh, the four specific uh, items that that you know combined equal they cracked down in the minds of American investors. I, I looked at each of those four regulatory actions and I didn't have a problem with any of them and didn't look at it, you know, I didn't look at it as, you know, Xi Jinping wanted to stop capitalism or that the government wasn't supportive of these companies. I thought it was, you know, smart and practical uh, you know, regulations, whether it's the Ant Group um uh, IPO that they stopped for, I think, smart reasons, um, or the educational reforms. None of them, I think, were as bad as people thought. The other thing that was hanging over the Chinese equities was the so-called delisting risk, which was incredibly misunderstood. And 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 unfortunately, people were very, very afraid of it. And they thought it was something that would happen and that they would lose their money if it happened. And neither of those, I thought, had a very high chance of happening. And and that situation has also been resolved. And, you know, it it was resolved in October of last year. And the problem is that the headlines on the resolution don't make as much noise as the headlines of fear. And so even this morning, for example, we got a 
an email from an investor in London, a professional investor in London, asking about the ADRs and the delisting. And, you know, they they hadn't quite gotten the message that actually the uh, public company accounting oversight board did go to China and did get access to the audit notes they were looking for. So bo- both of those fears that were the headline fears, the delisting and the and the crackdown, I think those, you know, were overblown fears and they've both been uh, somewhat resolved. I mean, Xi Jinping, the premier himself, has said that they're supportive of the technology platform companies and those, uh, you know, words of and actions of strong support, you know, were as recently as, as you know, last week. So I I think that, that those things are um, are largely behind us. Interesting. So, Kevin, you have an tech-focused EM ETF, your flagship fund, EMQQ, and it's heavy on Chinese technology stocks. And one of the holdings is actually Alibaba Group. And I thought it was interesting. I think it was a few months ago, Alibaba came out and they said they were going to split the company into several pieces and try to unlock value that way. Initially, the stock saw a big bump, and a lot of people thought that could be a template for a lot of other Chinese conglomerates to unlock value. What do you think of that? Well, I think that, you, I mean, the way you you phrased it is right. I think that, um, and Jack Ma was involved with this, by the way. And a lot of people thought Jack Ma was missing, and I, I don't think he ever was missing, but he's certainly not missing now. He was back in Hangzhou uh, when they announced this uh, restructuring. And it's actually into six different divisions. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And in, in fact, it's you know, if you go back to the, and I, I hate to call, call it a crackdown, but everyone else does, so I'll call it a crackdown. But one of the uh, the second regulatory action that was taken by the, the Commerce Department of China uh, was this antitrust and monopoly review that resulted in Alibaba and a lot of these other companies paying fines. And that, to me, when that was raised two years ago, I thought, well, of course they're monopolistic. I mean, that's the way they got so big. They you know, they very early, they were, you know, had 100 million or 200 million users on their platforms, whether it's social media for Tencent or e-commerce for Alibaba. And as every other new, you know, tech sector arose, they were the kingmaker. So in the ride hailing uh, business, you know, once Uber and Lyft appeared here in the United States, um, a lot of people copied that all over the world, including, you know, a dozen or so companies in China and Alibaba selected one to invest in, and Tencent invested in another, and the other 10 companies died. And so they basically, you know, for a decade, were able to throw their power around, and that's how they got so diversified in their businesses that they're in. And that includes um, web services, that includes grocery stores, that includes entertainment, that includes, in the case of Ant Group, you know, financial services, and so I thought the government actually might force them to break up, you know, back then. And now I'm not surprised to see that that Alibaba is, you know, doing what you described and trying to unlock value. And I think, you know, there's there really never was a good reason why the the grocery store business and the, the online bank and the, you know, e-commerce business all needed to report up the same, you know, reporting structure. So they're going to um, make each of the six units I- independent and they're free to uh, seek an IPO or otherwise um, uh, fund themselves. And I think I think it will be good to unlock value. I mean, the company is incredibly cheap. It has a PE of under 10. 
and it's got about 40% of its market cap in cash. So if you take out the cash, it's about six times earnings. So uh, Daniel Zhang has stepped down from the CEO of Alibaba to run the, the web services business. Joe Tsai uh, is back as the chairman again. So I think uh, I think they're doing the right things. And, and I think that, you know, the world's waiting to see some kind of growth out of China and they haven't seen what they've wanted yet. But you know, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, I think the expectations were unrealistic, not in terms of the growth, but in terms of when it would show up and when the the disruptions in the, of the COVID would work its way through. Wow. Single digit PEs for the China tech companies. That certainly does seem cheap on paper, especially compared to the tech giants that we have here in the United States. Now, Kevin, I want to talk about India the country's Prime Minister Modi recently came here to the U.S. to meet with President Biden, as well as many business leaders. A lot of people are hopeful about India's prospects, but there's some concerns as well. We got that famous Hindenburg short report earlier this year accusing one of India's biggest conglomerates of fraud. How should investors be thinking about India? Well, India right now is shaping up as sort of the dream emerging market. Like if you were going to go back 20 years and say, okay, what's, what does the perfect emerging market look like? It looks like India does today. And it has a lot going for it. The The case is very powerful and, and pretty straightforward. I mean, now it's the largest population on the planet, according to the World Bank. Uh, India passed China in late April to now have the largest population, and it's a young population, so its lead is going to get bigger and bigger. They've got uh, over 600 million Gen Z uh, in India alone, so it's big, it's young, it's got the fastest growing major economy. Most of that growth is coming in consumption. You have a middle class that will, uh, by most estimates, overtake China's uh, middle class uh, within a decade, and uh, it's got the fastest growing e-commerce market. Um, it's still only has about 50% smartphone penetration, but that's going up very quickly. There's about uh, 8 million people a month in India getting their first ever uh, smartphone. Smartphones are becoming more affordable and better every year. And, you know, I used to talk about how you could buy a brand new uh, Android-based smartphone for $50 in India and just a week ago uh, today, uh, Reliance Industries announced a $12 smartphone that they'll be rolling out in India. So the, the Indian consumer is getting a computer and they're getting online for the first time. And they're you know, doing the things we saw in China in terms of leapfrogging uh, traditional consumption and being more digital. So the, the, the case on paper looks really good, but the there's another important part of the India story, which is the foundation that is now in place. And it's a it's a foundation that includes, in my mind, three major pieces. First of all, India has the greatest tech talent on the planet. It has a, a tech sector that's 50 years old. You have, you know, the original wave of Indian tech companies from uh, Tata to uh, Infosys to to uh, YPro. These are companies that have been publicly traded for decades. They have tech billionaires. They have you know angel investors and a and a robust venture capital community. They also have the best uh, uh, 
technology schools in the world outside of the United States. They have 23 Indian Institutes of Technology that produce tons of world-class uh, engineers. Uh, the United States takes 300,000 foreign workers on H-1B uh, uh, work visas every year. And every year it's about 200,000 of those are, are from India. And in fact, the CEOs of both Google and Microsoft are Indian and came over initially on those visas. So the the ecosystem of people and, and culture and technology, no other emerging market has that. And again, it's decades old. So they have that going for them. When I got involved with China 18 years ago, China was a little bit ahead of India, but it wasn't that far ahead. But what you could see already was that China, with its one-party system, was able to very effectively and very quickly build out the world's best infrastructure. And that means the power grid, that means the highways, that means the trains, that means the ports. And meanwhile, India was sort of stuck sitting on its hands. Well. Prime Minister Modi now is finishing his 10th year, his second term, and he's almost certain to get a third and maybe even fourth term. And he's very powerful and he has gotten his party well organized and they are getting stuff done in a way that India has never seen. They have a massive infrastructure growth. They are spending a trillion and a half dollars in a moat in a multimodal uh, uh, coordinated plan to, uh, well, they've already doubled the highway miles in the last 10 years. They're going to triple the number of airports. They're putting in, uh, they have a, a very um, extensive rail network, but they need to electrify it, which they're doing quickly. They are building their own homemade uh, high-speed trains. Hundreds of them will roll out of the factories in the next uh, few years. Uh, and they're building the ports. And uh, the ports, however, uh, the seaports, these take a long time to build. And China's got way more cargo capacity than anybody else in Asia. So it, you know, this idea of offshoring jobs out of China into places like India, that will happen. But the reality is that you know most products get on a boat at some point. And so high value add products like smartphones will be made in India, but I think a lot of the lower uh, value things like you know uh, Christmas ornaments or what have you, I think it'll be highly unlikely those things will uh, migrate to uh, to India. So the the physical infrastructure there is is finally there, and then the last piece of the puzzle is something that I didn't frankly totally appreciate until the last several months, and this is what China has, or rather what India has, that no other country on the planet has it. It's what is referred to as the digital public infrastructure, also known as the um, India stack or the India digital stack. And basically the way to think about this is um, it's a series of government initiatives that are, that are, were put in place a long time ago that are starting to show incredible foresight and, and also incredible power. And this um, this digital stack, this uh, foundation, it started in 2009 with a program called Adahar, which means foundation. And the idea was that the company or the, 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 the country that India 
needed to develop a national public identity card because one of the problems that that India faced 15 years ago is nobody had a government issued identification. And so, uh, and, and not only that, only about 40% of the babies that were born were reported to the government. So as you might imagine, it's pretty hard to modernize an economy if nobody has any identification as to who they are exactly. And so the the general idea of the plan was let's, let's give everyone a, a, a card with a 12 digit number, sort of like our social security system. And, and when they the, launched the program, they asked the chairman of Infosys, Nandan Nilkani, who was one of the founders of Infosys and a billionaire, they asked him if he would help uh, by overseeing this Adahar uh, program. And he said that, yes, he would do it, but he was in, quite insistent that they had to make it focused on the technology-based solution and that not just the technology that was available in 2010, but rather what technology they felt the world would have in the coming decades. And so they, um, Nandan insisted that everybody get a number, but that the number had to be tied to a human being with fingerprints and an iris scan. And now that, so the, the program launched, it was totally voluntary. Nobody had to sign up. And I knew about this program and it, you know, it seemed sensible, but I didn't quite understand the power that this would provide. Um, so that was the, the the beginning of this India stack, the, the foundation, literally the Adahar. And then two years after they launched it, they introduced another layer to the stack, another layer on top of the, the Adahar uh, platform. And what they said was, it was a KYC or know your customer layer, which basically allowed for any Indian to walk, if they were in the Adahar system, they could walk into a bank and pretty much instantly, in a matter of minutes, open a bank account by putting their fingers on a screen and looking into a camera. And so um, you made it really easy for people that were in the database to in fact open up a bank account um, for the first time. And now fast forward to today, there's 1.3 billion people that are registered in the Autohar system. And there are 780 million new bank accounts. Think about that. So, so that foundation is now also starting to show a great amount of value. So the one of the other things that's happened in the last decade, maybe, uh, well, some people call it the big bang, but uh, Reliance Geo, which is one of our holdings, this is a, an Indian uh, conglomerate that's 50 years old that has made a very strong digital push over the last decade. And what they did in 2015, Mukesh Ambani, the chairman, had decided they had to make a digital pivot. And they bid for the first 4G mobile license in India. And they won the bidding. And then they invested $25 billion in a brand new 4G uh, based nationwide network that was also prepared for 5G and 6G. And when they launched, the existing uh, carrier market was fragmented. It was almost all on 2G. And there had been a price war that had devastated the balance sheet of the other carriers. And 
when when geo launched at the end of 2016 right when the smartphones were really starting to fly off the shelves if you will they launched and they had the following sort of offer to indian consumers you sign up with them with geo digital and they would give you unlimited voice forever for free and they'd give you six months of unlimited data for free and then once your free trial was over, they said they would have the lowest rates in the country. And of course, they had the only 4G network and everybody else was essentially still on 2G. Now, when they started, they had a very ambitious goal. Mukesh said that they wanted to sign up 100 million customers by the end of the following year, which was basically a 13-month period because they launched in November of 2016. And so the goal was somewhat outrageous to sign up 100 million people. And now back then, you know, 14, 15 years ago, or actually this was, you know, eight or nine years ago, um, uh, when you want to get a, a mobile phone in India, you have to prove who you are. You can't, you know, there are no burner phones. Every, every person needs to provide identification. And so people would go into the Airtel store or the Vodafone store with paperwork, and it might take hours or even days to get a new phone. Well, when Geo launched, they used the API for Autohar and their in-store signup system, which was you know pad-based, was tied to Autohar, and they were able to sign up 100 million people in four months with an average sign-up time of about three minutes just by putting people's fingers on a screen and having them look into a camera. And so that was the first time that the power of this Autohar system revealed itself. Now, Geo now has 450 million subscribers. The cost of data in India is the lowest in the world by far. In fact, we pay 50 times as much for our data as India does. And then right around the time that that the Geo launched, uh, Nandan Nilkani um, and his team uh, revealed a second part of this India digital stack. And this was called the Unified Payments Interface or UPI. And again, I knew about this, but I didn't quite get it or understand it or see its power, nor did many people, I think, at the time. Now it's become clear. And the, the Unified Payments Interface or UPI, you know, the headline was that it was a government-sponsored program, and that would allow any two people or any person in a business to transfer money instantly to the other party with no cost or friction and instant, instantaneously. And my initial concern was that Paytm, which was one of the higher profile unicorns at the time, was, was that perhaps their business would be threatened if they're a, a mobile payments company and the government has put out a, a, a platform that allows everyone to transfer money and make payments for free, I was worried that that might be damaging to the prospects for Paytm. Well, fast forward now, and you combine this digital stack, the geo-digital and the, the hundreds of millions of people they brought online, and uh, you now have this unified payments interface. The number of digital payments in India monthly have exploded. I mean, exploded in the last four years. They're up several hundred percent. And 
the economy, which eight years ago was all cash. I mean, it was a very gray market. Uh, it was 4% digital. Now it's 75% digital. And so the platform is there and the digital growth, uh, particularly in payments is exploding. And so this um, digital stack, this digital public infrastructure is, it's unique on the planet and it's very powerful. And um, uh, now they're offering to give it away to other countries. In fact, I think that uh, Prime Minister Modi was just in France uh, this week. And one of the things that they announced was the French have said that they would be happy to take a copy of the UPI for their country. So we'll see if there's any countries that will be able to use the Autohar platform, which they've also offered to give away. But I think that particularly in our country, the privacy concerns and these things may predict or, you know, um, keep us from adopting it. But in terms of liquefying your economy, liquefying uh, your country, it seems to me that those that digital identification system uh, is an incredibly powerful tool, especially for uh, an emerging market that's, you know, coming from nothing to fully digitized uh, at an incredible speed. That's incredible. Yeah, that it, it's truly fascinating. And it certainly seems like India has built world-class digital and financial infrastructure. I know here in the U.S., the Fed is launching Fed Now Instant Payments this month, yet India has had that for quite a while now, as you mentioned, with UPI. So uh, they are ahead in, in some regards uh, versus the United States. So, Kevin, with all that said, I want to kind of zoom out now and talk about EM more broadly before I let you go. Uh, a lot of people thought that 2022 represented this big paradigm shift where U.S. tech and growth stocks uh, were going to start to underperform and all those neglected parts of the global markets like value and emerging markets were going to start to do better. But here we are in 2023 and it seems like we're back to square one with mega cap tech dominating again. What will it take to see a sustained period of outperformance in EM? Well, let me make one other big statement about emerging markets. I mean, the biggest problem in the emerging markets is that the index is terrible. I mean, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which is what everybody uses, I mean, the Vanguard ETF tracks the FTSE index, but for, for all intents and purposes, it's the, it's the MSCI index that people look at. And, and the, by the way, the FTSE isn't any better, but it, it is different. Um, the biggest problem with emerging markets is the index is full of state-owned enterprises, and it also is missing most of the internet companies. So, so you know, every time people look at it, they say, "Well, I'm really excited about emerging markets, and this is the time that they're going to take off." And the, you know, the PEs are so low versus the S and P 500. How could it not be a bargain? Well, if you dig under the hood and start looking at what are the businesses that are part of this index, and you see these, you know, government policy banks and Petrobras. You know, it's not clear that you want to own these stocks at five times earnings, let alone at ten times earnings. So, so I'm, I'm, I start by saying I'm a little dubious as to what, how people are measuring the index because, again, uh, the, the legacy, a corrupt economy dominates, and the digital economy is basically missing, at least half of it's missing from the index. Um, in terms of um, you know what will get the emerging markets investors 
uh, excited again. I, I, re- I mean, China remains the biggest part of emerging markets. And so I think it's uh, the resumption of growth there. You know, as we talked earlier on, people were excited and expecting it and banking on it, you know, in January and February, which I just thought was incredibly uh, sort of naive to think that, that you know, they were going to just end the lockdown and everything would be back to normal because uh, they they had done a good job of keeping the COVID out. So they pretty much let the let the plague go on the entire population and that there was no way that wasn't going to be disruptive for at least six months. And and now that's passed. And now I think it makes sense to start looking uh, at things. But but I still think, you know, six or eight more months will get us towards a chance at growth as opposed to people thinking that January and February we're going to see uh, some strong rebound. That's great. Well, Kevin, a ton of great information. Thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your insights with us. Thank you very much for having me. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.